On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it is me, Kaya, Diara, and Sam, as usual, talking about the news that you might not have caught in the past week, but news that you should know. And then I sit down with Brian Stelter to discuss his new book about Trump, about Fox News, and about dangerous distortions of truth. I learned a lot. My advice for this week is to clean up. That in my apartment, I feel like I've been in here forever now because of COVID. But I did a deep clean over the weekend. And it was one of those things where, like, I just needed to, like, get rid of some old stuff, recycle some stuff, throw out the trash, hang this stuff up in new places. I decided that, like, the books really belonged over here and not over here. And now, like, the the space I'm living in and working in just, like, works much better because I devoted the time to clean up. There are probably a lot of things in your life that you need to clean up. And let's just make it a goal this week to like do some of that. Let's go. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter, where I don't do too much tweeting, and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. I'm Dre at DIY on Twitter. All right, folks. So there's no way we can not talk about the person that lives in the White House who has COVID. He and the First Lady tested positive earlier this week, along with a lot of other folks um, that are prominent in the GOP. You know, we've been talking a lot about how to make these episodes hopeful. So here's our chance. Um, We hope that he recovers, but we also hope that he now thinks COVID is a real thing. We also hope that folks that need treatment are getting the same treatment that he's getting right now. So I'll I'll leave it there before it goes into a different direction, but I don't know if you all have thoughts on um, the current state. He is play. I don't know if he's playing us anymore as much as he is definitely playing the media like a fiddle. I mean, he has the media wrapped around his hand. So it's like, I saw the clip of him getting out of the hospital bed, going to go wave to the people or at the hospital, going to go. And it's like, he is just a master dominating the news. And, you know, they are complicit in it. Like they have been complicit for a long time, but you're like, this man didn't care about the 200,000 people died. He doesn't care. He hasn't cared about any of the people sick. Herman Cain, rest in peace. I mean, like everybody, mm. hey, he has just like disregarded their lives completely. And now he has it and it's the number one story and people aren't even calling out the hypocrisy. I'm actually shocked at how well he was able to turn this into a media story about himself. So there are two things that come to mind thinking about this story. One, you know, going to your comment, Diara, around, you know, hoping that this makes him take coronavirus more seriously. Like, I hope so, but I really am not optimistic because just looking on, uh, on social media a few minutes ago, seeing his caravan 
like him and his uh, motorcade driving around endangering Secret Service agents who are like trapped in this like sealed air sealed vehicle with somebody who has just tested positive and is definitely within the range of still being infectious. And like, it is just wild that he is, even after this, even after contracting COVID, he's like still gambling with people's lives, still like flaunting social distancing guidelines, showing up to places, endangering other people, creating super spreader events, right? Like that is like wild. Um, It also reminds me of an article that I read uh, a week or so ago that was tracking differences between countries in terms of how big their sort of COVID outbreaks are. Um, and what they found was that it, it really comes down to super spreader events, that there are a, a smaller set of people that just in the wrong circumstances, the wrong time, not social distancing, like lead to these massive infections that just like completely alter an entire country's ability to deal with it. Um, and like the fact that like the president of this country is literally hosting super spreader events is just like a level of public health risk that is like wild to even think about. What has been interesting to me about this whole thing, there's lots that's interesting to me, um, but looking at the regimen of of medications that he has access to, the phalanx of doctors that he has access to, um, and thinking about just what is not available to regular people is pretty astounding. Um, There are lots of doctors who are coming out and talking about how promising the regimen of care is, how it's the, the steroids, the trial drugs, all of these different things that they are actually um, working together to really ensure that he has the best chances of survival, which is what you would expect for a president. But it just is another glaring indication of the fact that, you know, 213,000 people have died. And if they had access to any of that, it doesn't have to be the case. And, And you can trace that decision directly back to the president, who, again, knew before he said he knew. Um, in fact, he knew that he had COVID before he said he knew is what it looks like. And this pattern of deception is, uh, frankly, um, the pattern around the media circus, it's galling when you, if you know anybody who has died from COVID, like to watch all of this is really pretty offensive. And, you know, I think DeRay is right. He has manipulated this and is playing the media in really um, effective ways. And that just makes other, these people's deaths and, and people who struggle with this this virus really, really um, unimaginable. I, it, it, it makes me even sicker. I don't, I don't know. I don't have anything hopeful to say about this. I mean, I think the one hopeful thing is that it is going to have an impact on his campaign. I mean, he's not going to be able to be at fundraisers. He's not going to be able to be at these wild rallies. At least we get a break from that. So I think, you know, seeing that there are Maybe, 30... hopefully, hopefully. I mean, hopefully, but I mean, the fact of the matter is it's going to be, you know, a couple weeks. Again, we hope a couple weeks of having a break from all of that and, and you know, and also being hopeful that that has some type of impact. He also appears to have infected enough Republican senators to delay the Supreme Court uh, proceedings. That's that part, days. Sam. That's that part. They're running on a very narrow timeline. There's a really narrow timeline. They don't have days to That's lose. Good. And like, it's not looking good for them now either. So big unforced error from <laughs> Thank you, Sam. I don't think about that. That is, that is real. I'm bringing a little um, reminder of how good human beings are 
in this crazy week. <laughs> um, in that my news is highlighting the story of Tanqueray. Um, if you don't know Tanqueray, oh my gosh, where have you been? Um, she is the star of the Humans of New York uh, storytelling franchise on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Tanqueray's real name is uh, Stephanie Johnson, and she is 76 years old. And she is a former burlesque dancer who has lived an incredible life full of rich and engaging stories uh, that the Humans of New York folks have captured. Um, and they started a, about a year ago when Brandon, who runs Humans of New York, who writes Humans of New York, uh, Brandon Stanton, he ran into her as he was coming out of the gym and she had on a full length fur coat and this headband and she's a very colorfully dressed character. And he complimented her on her outfit and um, she said to him, tell me something. Why do white boys always wear shorts when it's cold? And that began a relationship between them where she told her stories and he captured her stories. And last year he ran a few pieces on her uh, and then he hadn't seen her for a while. And he went to check on her and it turned out that she was ill and she was um, and she needed some support. And so he embarked upon a campaign to raise money to support her medical expenses and her life expenses. And um, within a week, uh, asking, it was a GoFundMe campaign, within a week, humans all over the country and all over the world who have enjoyed uh, Tanqueray's story um, raised $2.5 million to take care of this woman um, as she ages in place. And uh, her story tells of gritty New York City mobsters and pimps and prostitutes and and burlesque dancers and thieves and all kinds of things. Um, and it also tells about the goodness of people and how people take care of people. And I thought that it was incredibly hopeful um, that the world kind of rallied around her story and engaged in her story, but also that people contributed to support this lady. Um, and she in turn um, likely has, they've raised more money than she will probably need, um, but she has created, they've created a trust where um, whatever is left over after uh, she no longer needs anything, um, after her death, the remaining money will be donated to the Association to Benefit Children, which is a nonprofit that serves underprivileged children in New York City. And um, one of the panels that they did, one of the pieces that they did on her, um, showed the, the young people from the Association to Benefit Children um, coming to her house, and they drew her pictures and just brightened up her, her place. And so at a time where we have very big questions about people's humanity and people's care for one another, I wanted to lift up a story that was hopeful and a story that reminds us that we do take care of each other and that our stories matter, our lives are important. Um, nobody would have known about Stephanie Johnson if it wasn't for uh, Brandon running into her on his way from the gym. And um, I think we got to keep telling each other stories and keep supporting each other. So that's my news for this week. One of the things that I loved about this is that she had been approached by TV and movie executives after the first posting on Humans in New York. 
And she said that she wanted the Humans in New York Instagram page to tell her story. Like, she chose, she was like, I trust him. And, like, I want him to tell my story. And there's so much agency in thinking about, like, who you trust to tell that story. And I, like, I I love that about, like, this part of it. Another thing that I'm always mindful of, especially with that generation, is that there's an interview in the New York Times where she talks about... Um, that all of the people she came up with, all of those stories and da-da-da, that they are dead now. That she is the survivor, right? She's like the ballroom scene and the gay community and da-da. Like, she's like, I don't have any of these people anymore. Like, I have lived such a full life, but there is a, I'm alone in this moment. And there is something interesting about the internet actually allows you to build community. And I think that she benefited from like, a community building that is very different than like what a TV show or what a, uh, you know, podcast can do it a little bit, but there is something immediate about the community that can happen like this. And this is really like the best version of it. So that is really cool. And that she changed her name uh, so many times so that she could protect the people that she was in the, like she was a stripper, she was in the sex industry, uh, or she was a sex worker. And like, she needed to protect the people around her, which is why she, brought on these these like different identities. I loved her story. And I was surprised when they were like, we're going to do a multi-part. I mean, it was a lot of posts about Tangeray. 33 this time and how many ever there were before. And I was like, are people going to stay tuned to this? And like, Brandon Stanton is a storyteller. He got it. Mm-hmm. He got the juice. Just a couple of numbers. That according to Instagram, the Humans in New York account has gained over 15,000 new followers on Facebook and over 66,000 followers on Instagram since the Tanqueray series started last week. And the account has received over 7 million likes and 140,000 comments on Facebook. So it's been fascinating to see sort of Humans of New York, like how it's sort of grown over the years and how many stories like we've learned through Humans of New York and, you know, both in the U.S., all across the world, like so many different people and how wild it's been that, that it's like just an IG plat- like like account, right? Like you can post like whatever you want and like how they've used that account in such a powerful way to lift up stories that are really unique um, that teach us about the world and about like about experiences that we may have thought about or heard of, but like never had met anybody or heard directly from people like who had experienced things that like we might've read about or like uh, heard about or seen in a movie, but like, like the real thing that people like really went through um, in so many different uh, contexts and places across the world. And it's always fascinating to see like how people in the community uh, responds to particular stories, um, which stories seem to like be really, um, sort of compelling and, and resonate with people. I think with Tenkere, it was a really good example of um, like somebody who has really like seen it all, has seen so much that is fascinating that like, like for me, like as somebody who's like 30 years old, things that like I like never knew about or like had access to or like could have read in like a history book, but just like never would have known who to ask or like how to ask the right questions to like really hear from somebody directly what happened. Um, in that particular context, in that particular culture and moment. Um, so, I, so I think Humans of New York has been really powerful in like lifting up stories like that and um, just demonstrates the power of like being creative with like, you know, Instagram. Like everybody has an Instagram, like a lot of people have an Instagram account, but like how you use that account, like you can do so many incredible things with it. Okay, my news is from New York Magazine. It's actually a visual piece, so I encourage all of you to watch it. It's called A Beach of Our Own. And it captures the history and the present of black families that live in Sag Harbor. So in the Hamptons, but in the Hamptons, there's a a town called Sag Harbor. 
So during Jim Crow, this group of trailblazing black families essentially built a haven for themselves, um, which has thrived for generations and generations. And now this small community, though, is at risk. I'll get to that. So Sag Harbor's Eastville community actually welcomed formerly enslaved black men as early as 1818, many of whom worked as whalers, fishermen, or shipbuilders. So, but by the mid 20th century, the villages, um, these, these villages that they established, that they founded, they were collectively known as Sands. Eastville is also an adjacent settlement that was sold to black folks and indigenous folks actually 100 years prior to that. So this community has been around for a very long time. And by the 1940s, Sands became a summer destination for middle class black folks. It was a destination and black folks were building homes, but they can only really build small homes because of redlining. So a lot of folks couldn't get mortgages or couldn't get a loan essentially to, to build a bigger house. Um, and we know that redlining is the discriminatory practice by which a financial institution could and often did refuse or limit a loan or insurance within specific geographic areas. And this particularly happened in, in the inner cities. I just wanted to raise this because one of the things that it's gotten me to thinking about and, and Sands is similar to other, you know, established beachfront black communities like in Oak Bluffs and Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Also Highland Beach, which is in Maryland, that was uh, founded in 1893. But what it got me to thinking about is, yes, one, why it's important to keep these safe havens for black folks and why it's important for them to continue to exist. Many of them are at risk now by developers. Hopefully the whatever is done that needs to be done to help protect these folks happens. What it made me think about is my grandparents, who we are not Martha's Vineyard or Hamptons people. We're from St. Paul, Minnesota. My, both my grandparents were born in the 30s. My grandpa worked in a paper factory. My grandmother grew up as a migrant worker, but then was a foreman at, at a factory called Unisys. But they went fishing all the time, whenever they could. They went to the lake, and they would take us kids up to the lake, and we'd complain, and we'd hate it. So we'd go up to the lake. We'd go to the cabin. We'd wake up 5 o'clock in the morning, go sit on the lake, and my grandpa would always go, shh, 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 shut up, shut up, shh. So we would just be quiet and still. And now as I'm getting older, I'm thinking back to it and how my grandpa was really teaching us mindfulness and he was teaching us how to be still and he was teaching us how to find peace, which I think as black folks or oppressed folks, vulnerable folks, whatever the the moniker we're comfortable with, I think it's so important for us to find ways to get peace of mind. Um, And so really, no matter your socioeconomic status, whatever that self-care practice looks like, really figuring out what that is, even if that's taking a nap. Um, So I think this is one, this is a really beautiful story that you all should watch. The visuals are beautiful and the black folks in it are beautiful and bronzy and magical. Um, But I think it's also just important for us to explore our elders and how they found quiet and stillness and peace. And when I think about my grandparents and what they came up in, how much they needed that as a interracial couple in St. Paul, Minnesota, in the 50s and 60s. So that's my news, y'all. 
So I had known as much about uh, Sag Harbor. I'd heard about it. Like people had said Sag Harbor, but I didn't realize the black history of it. Uh, one of the things that I looked up in preparation for this, though, is that there are only about 20 of the original families that still maintain their homes, that redevelop, that developers have bought off so many of the properties to like make them into McMansions or like do something else to them. Um, and that there is a concerted effort to like try to help keep these homes like owned by the families that pioneered this space. And it is just a reminder that like, you know, that's one of the challenges of the intergenerational wealth and you get the developers come in and there is so much money to be made in destroying parts of history uh, and creating new things that often are not creating new things for the people that made the history. Like, you know, black people made this space magical. And then you develop it and da-da-da, and you know like I know who's moving in all of a sudden, right? Um, and and I'm always interested in that. So that was really shocking that it's such a small group of families left who still own the houses. So my news is about Colorado, where this past week the governor, Jared Polis, issued a pardon to 2,700 people in the state who had marijuana convictions, particularly convictions for marijuana possession of under an ounce. And this is important because, you know, Colorado legalized marijuana in 2012, um, but a whole host of people who had been convicted prior to that still had those convictions on their record. Uh, and so in one sweeping move, the governor uh, expunged those records. Uh, now, this highlights the power that governors have uh, to address issues like mass incarceration through the clemency process and pardon process. Um, but Again, it's also a reminder of just how many people are still impacted by the war on drugs and by the war on marijuana in particular. Um, so data just came out from the federal government on arrests that happened nationwide last year. And what they found was that there were over 500,000 arrests for marijuana possession in 2019. In fact, that was more than the total number of arrests for all violent crimes combined. And again, the, while that number has gone down a little bit, in part because of uh, big drops in states like Texas that legalized hemp and made it pretty hard for prosecutors to prove that somebody has marijuana versus hemp. So like they just couldn't charge people for marijuana in, in many cases. Um, but yet and still, despite those small declines from uh, the past year, uh, it remains like an obscene amount of people that continue to be arrested for marijuana, that continue to have marijuana convictions on their records, despite legalization continuing to happen in more and more states. I thought this one was extremely hopeful, and hopefully more of it will continue. Also think for folks to understand like what an ounce of cannabis is, like it's like 28 grams. So it's probably like, I don't know, like 25 or so joints. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, which is not a lot for that to be put on your record and for you to be subject to arrest, especially in a place like Colorado, where in just the month of June, they sold $198.8 million worth of marijuana. So you going to lock me up for a joint or two? Come on. That's wild. Wild. So I think this is an extremely good action and hopefully other governors follow. I also hope that just our regular smegular old line prosecutors stop prosecuting people that have such a small amount of marijuana on them because they have the discretion to do that in most places. But yeah, this is this is great. And I hope there's there's more to come. 
So remember that, you know, Colorado obviously has legalized marijuana uh, and they did that in 2012. So what the legislature passed is a bill that allows the governor to pardon people for 50 years before 2012, which is what happened. Uh, Remember that before this bill and before these pardons, people who had convictions prior to legalization would have to petition the courts individually and get the judge to individually expunge the record. That's wild. This should be basic, right? This should be like what comes with legalization should be this sort of law, like just expunge it all. Uh, The other thing is that this is a reminder that the legislatures have a lot of power. That when we think about incarceration across the country, when we think about the number of people arrested, the number of people in, in jails, almost everybody who's incarcerated is in a local or state prison or jail. Like local state prisons and jails is really where the vast majority of people are. It's not the federal prison system. So like, we should be pressing on all our legislators to like do this sort, like to pass laws that actually decarcerate, that keep people out of jail. I, I feel like I feel like this is where the media is not necessarily our friend. Is that if you watch the media, you would think that like the federal government was like the arbiter of who goes to jail and who does it, and like and that's just not true. It's like there are over two million people in jail. Uh, less, it's about two hundred ish thousand people are incarcerated in federal prisons. The vast majority of people are in local prisons and jails. So, like, shout out to the legislature in Colorado for not only moving on the end of qualified immunity, which is they're the first state that did that, but also for like moving on these things because, like, y'all, these legislators at the state level are punking everybody. Like, they don't have a lot of power, and they are the reason why things aren't moving. My news was reported in the 19th, which is an amazing new publication uh, started by a black woman focused on women. And uh, what it talks about is that the headline is 865,000 women left the workforce last month. And it was interesting because I hadn't seen a breakout like this before. So there are a couple of things that were fascinating to me about this analysis. The first was that uh, it reminded us what a lot of people already thought was happening, but that the burden has fallen mostly on working mothers and not fathers in heterosexual relationships who are more than three times as likely to be responsible for the majority of housework and childcare during the pandemic, which was published by uh, Lean In this week that studied 317 companies and more than 40,000 employees. It also showed that this is the first time in six years of research that this study has found evidence of women intending to leave their jobs at a higher rate than men, which is interesting. And then the unemployment data itself was just fascinating. So it notes that unemployment went down for most groups last month, hitting 7.7% for all women, down from the peak of 15.5% in April and 7.4% for men compared to 13% in April. But it remained in double digits for Black women at 11.1% and for Latina women at 11%. So it's like, when I look at this, I, you know, this is like our theme of the past couple of weeks is like, y'all, we have not yet reckoned with like the large scale impact of coronavirus. And part of what we need when Trump gets out of office is for there to be like a real cross-functional task force of every agency in the federal government to like help deliver a plan so that unemployment, the small businesses closing, education, so that we get back on track because everything I'm looking at makes it clear that we are just like maintaining right now, but like 
we are not in the clear by any stretch of the imagination. And there is certainly no plan. I mean, this is just the continuation of the piece that I did a few weeks ago on how the child care crisis was um, affecting women and women of color, how even when jobs are coming back, they're coming back at about 60% for white people and less than 40% for people of color. I mean, this is, I feel like, a broken record on this. All I mean, Disney just laid off 28,000 people last week. Um, the airlines are furloughing people. We have not begun to reckon. And, you know, states don't have money. We saw it last week and that they're running out of stimulus funds and the mayor's office in New York has furloughed people. We're going to see this winter people being laid off in droves and our economy is not going to bounce back. Even the stock market people are predicting devastating consequences and we just keep on acting like it's business as usual. But as always, when, you know, America gets a cold, people of color get pneumonia and or covid or whatever and we just keep seeing it in the numbers these reports are going to keep on coming out showing that the people who bear the economic burden of this are women because they not only have to take care of their own children they have to take care of family members you know they attend to people and these are the ones who are losing jobs and not going back into the job force and so there's more to come unfortunately y'all i guess i'm just processing and still stuck on the Lean In Foundation. Sheryl Sandberg, you got the resources. What you gonna do now? You got the report. What you gonna do now? That's what I wanna know. Got an election coming up. What's Facebook gonna do about that? So it is sort of wild, like the seeing the data on how a tiny proportion of the population, like super wealthy people like Jeff Bezos and like Mark Zuckerberg and other people have like made billions during the pandemic. Meanwhile, it has like exacerbated inequities that were already at like an extreme and unsustainable and ridiculous level before the pandemic and like multiplied them, like like poured gasoline all over that and made things even worse, right? And so like now we're in the situation where like it is going to take a massive restructuring of society, a massive reinvestment and redistribution, frankly, from those who have benefited by this pandemic, have taken money from, you look at businesses that made all of that money from the PPP loans, you're looking at places, uh, companies that made all this money from the bailouts, you're looking at rich people that continue to make money by making their money make money. And like all of that, like that wealth is being accumulated and that wealth needs to be invested in black women. It needs to be invested in black communities. It needs to be invested in the places that are absolutely bearing the brunt of this crisis. And yet, despite that clear reality we're seeing in Congress, they're not even taking up the coronavirus legislation. Like they're not even interested in any relief. And so like it is a complete disconnect. And I hope that like in this election, there will be enough turnout to put all of those things politically on the table as soon as possible and to pressure and frankly vote out of office people like Mitch McConnell that have stood in the way of any type of reinvestment um, in the context of this pandemic. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. 
Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Today's interview is with Brian Stelter, who has a new book out called Hoax. And Hoax, the CNN anchor and chief media correspondent, tells a twisted story of the relationship between Donald Trump and Fox News. From the moment Trump glided down the golden escalator to announce his candidacy, Fox hosts have spread his lies and smeared his enemies. Here's our discussion about where everything went wrong. Here we go. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, you just had a big book come out, uh, Hoax. But you've been in the journalism game for a long time. I can only imagine that this moment must be so wild as a journalist to to see how people treated Hillary and and all the scrutiny she got during the campaign. And then we are stuck in this moment. Uh, can you talk about why you wanted to write a book about the lies and about uh, Trump? Uh, it was definitely a way to get uh, some of my uh, energy and angst and <laughs> rage out. Uh, rage, to borrow Bob Woodward's book title. Look, I think that uh, the president has concocted a giant hoax, which is ultimately why the book is uh, titled Hoax. You know, he's out there telling people not to believe the media, to only trust his friends at Fox News, and that's been really damaging and destabilizing. Uh, it's, it's the biggest hoax of all. And uh, we've seen that in the pandemic this year, but I think it actually goes back, you know, five years. It goes back to his campaign and his attempt to destroy news outlets that he doesn't agree with. Um, and, and that campaign just gets more and more fierce. So I, I felt like somebody needed to document it all and uh, figure out where, where this is taking us, frankly. And what did you learn in the process? Like, what was one of your biggest ahas that, that came through in the process? Yeah, well, I think that it's hard to say where Fox ends and where Trump begins or, or vice versa. You know, there's never been this kind of alliance, this merger between Trump and Fox. Uh, it, maybe there never will be again, or maybe this will be the new normal, right? Maybe every president in the future will have a, a propaganda arm like this. But it's an incredibly uh, strange thing, and it creates an enormous amount of tension inside Fox. I, I would say that those are some of the biggest findings in the book, um, the amount of tension that exists inside the network about trying to cover for and cover up a serial liar, trying to, to make excuses for his mistakes and screw-ups and controversies. Uh, you would think it would be the best of times at Fox News. They're more profitable than ever and having a blast. But no, it's actually pretty stressful <laughs> over there. And why is it stressful for them? Why, why are they not having a blast? Like, is it <laughs> they seem to be benefiting immensely from Trump? Well, they, they, right, they are from a profit perspective and from a ratings perspective. Uh, you know, audiences are sky high, the money is, is coming in uh, hand over fist. But, you know, let's take a look at the, the, the Trump tax story. The New York Times breaks this big story about Trump avoiding paying taxes. Uh, Fox is covering it not just with kid gloves, but with several layers of kid gloves. Like, try to force them all onto your hands. The way they cover the tax story is by framing it through Trump's denials. Now, most Americans know that Trump's word is basically worthless, that he contradicts himself and lies a lot and can't be relied on to tell the truth. But on Fox, they have to pretend like his words are really meaningful and that, that he is a truth teller. And so they frame all their coverage of this, this huge explosive story through Trump's words. And I think like, that's an example of, of the stress. You know, how do you cover this story in a way that's not going to tick off Trump or your audience? And that's a hard, you know, I'm not trying to suggest there should be sympathy for these folks, but that's a hard thing to do. And, and what, what do they get out of it? Like, why do you think, why is Fox so invested in this? 
Uh, well, it, you know, in some ways, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship, although I argue in hoax that Trump actually suffers quite a bit. You know, when he thinks he's being helped by Fox, he's actually being hurt by Fox because he's being told just to focus on his basically uh, white Christian conservative base and not try to oppose the rest of the country. So I would argue that when they tried to Trump a service, they're doing him a disservice. But he thinks they're helping him. Uh, Trump thinks he's being helped by Fox. He likes the pro-Trump propaganda on Fox, you know, and, and Fox likes having him and millions of his fans as viewers, right? So, he, frankly, you know, I, you know, this is interesting because it, it came up time and time again in my interviews for the book. I was interviewing Fox staffers who would say, I feel like we're being held hostage by the audience. I feel like we're being, the audience is being radicalized. These are, these are wild things to hear Fox staffers say about their own viewers. But there is an element of truth to that idea that the Fox audience has moved more and more to the right. They expect to hear good news about Trump and bad news about the evil Democrats. And so Fox serves that up again and again and again, even when it's far from the truth. Why, why won't those people quit? <laughs> Well, some of them, some of them do. Uh, most do not. Uh, some of them do quit. They say they can't take it anymore. And I have about a dozen stories and hoax of, of staffers who have quit. Although here's something interesting, Ray. They almost never say why. Like for example, Shep Smith is launching a new show on CNBC. He snapped. He left because he couldn't take it anymore. But in his interviews for his new show, he doesn't talk about what went wrong at Fox. He's been trying to avoid it. Now, maybe that's because he has a big contract or he has a non-disclosure agreement or a non-disparagement clause. But I find this happens over and over again. People leave Fox because they can't take it anymore, and then they don't talk about why, which I would argue is a bad thing because people should hear their stories. Uh, but why do people uh, stay? Why do the, the folks who don't quit stay? Um, there's a few reasons that people identify for me. Number one, probably the biggest, is money. You, you, you can make a lot of money in the television business. It can be very lucrative. People worry about not finding another job elsewhere. Uh, and number two, power uh, in various ways. You know, the power of having a job where a million people are watching your show, the power of influencing Trump and his aides. Uh, and then, you know, the third one is not to be discounted. It's a sense of family, a sense of community at Fox, a sense of us against the world. And that can be very intoxicating. I, when sources brought that up to me, I said I understood it. I can, I can understand that feeling. I can sympathize with that feeling of not wanting to leave your family. But, of course, at the end of the day, it's not a family. It's a giant corporation. Got it. Who's, like, the big protector at Fox? Is there one person that if we change that person, like, no longer will they be invested in protecting Trump? Yeah, I mean, I think Sean Hannity is certainly the, the, the single loudest propagandist on Trump's behalf. Uh, if, if Hannity were not there, uh, the channel would not have its single biggest connection to Trump, I, I guess is the way I would say it. You know, Trump is so invested in Hannity and vice versa. Uh, but there's lots of different flavors of Trump support within Fox. There's the Tucker Carlson flavor of being anti-anti-Trump and focusing on white identity politics. There's the Laura Ingram flavor where she tries to be like a, a White House press secretary and give the president communications advice through the TV. Um, there's lots of different people that have carved out their own niches within the Fox universe. And I mean, that's kind of what's twisted about this. It's the incentive structure that's gone all wrong there. The incentive is to be Trumpy, to become Trumpier and Trumpier. What does that mean, to be Trumpier? It means to be unhinged from reality. It means to mislead the public. And those are not journalism incentives. Those are entertainment incentives or, or political warfare incentives. So what can we do about the Fox effect? 
Like, can we rein in Fox, or do, are we, do we just stomach it and hope he loses the election? I don't want to play the role of giving advice about, about challenging Fox. There's groups like Media Matters, there's not, you know, activist groups that do that. But here, here's what I do think matters from a media perspective. Scrutiny of Fox does matter. Coverage of Fox does matter. Uh, the network does issue apologies, or at least issue corrections when there's enough scrutiny when things go wrong. Um, not every time, but sometimes. There are moments where they will run a correction or they will fess up. It, it, look, one of the reasons why so many sources talk to me for hoax is because there's this sense of a lack of accountability of Fox. But there is accountability when there's enough outside pressure from advertisers, from journalists, uh, you know, from, from average viewers and citizens. So I, I do think that has an impact, at least around the edges. It doesn't change what Tucker Carlson's monologue is going to say. But if he goes so far away from the facts uh, or, or the story is totally bogus, there are times where Fox comes under pressure to address that, to at least issue a short correction. <laughs> but, but I think that the, the bigger picture is this. Um, Fox doesn't have to be this way. You know, it doesn't have to misinform the president every day. Um, this is fundamentally the choice the Murdochs are making to have the network be the way it is. If James Murdoch, the more liberal son of Rupert Murdoch, were to try to take over one day, yeah, you could imagine a very different right-wing media ecosystem as a result. Now, to be clear, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but it is a possibility in the future. Is there anything that you went in thinking was one way, and then in, in doing the research, you were like, wow, this isn't, uh, this isn't what I thought it'd be? Uh, there, there, there definitely are. I mean, I, I think there are more nuanced reasons why staffers uh, work at Fox than I realized. Um, and I mean, we talked about, about some of those reasons why people stay in jobs they don't like. <laughs> and, well, let me put it this way. I, I always viewed Fox as a TV channel just like CNN or MSNBC. I think they do a very different thing. They're more political. But, you know, I viewed it as another channel on the dial. And what I realized through the course of the reporting was it is so much more than a TV channel. It is a way of life for its viewers. Fox is an identity. Fox is like a senior citizen center and a town hall and a city square and the supermarket and all these things rolled up into a, into a brand. And that's really powerful. Um, you can say it's a good thing, you can say it's a bad thing, but it's really powerful. And so I try to meet Fox viewers kind of a little bit toward where they are and understand why the channel is so appealing to them. Understand why that, what I would consider to be an alternative universe of information, is so appealing to them. And, and not dismiss it out of hand. Is the viewer base of Fox what I think it is? Like older and almost exclusively white? Or am I wrong? You are right. And uh, the numbers are amazing. Uh, for example, the, the average Fox viewer, the median age, is about 67 years old, which means half the audience wow. is over the age of 67 years old. Um, furthermore, the audience is almost entirely white. The, uh, if you take 100%, try to picture 100% of the pie, 1% is going to be African-American uh, in terms of viewership at any given time. Uh, maybe another 1% or 2% Hispanic, Asian-American. Um, you're going to see an almost entirely white audience on Fox. And that's different from CNN and MSNBC, uh, where, where there's definitely a greater Hispanic and African-American audience for CNN and MSNBC. And look, I think we can actually see, I hate to say this because it's so depressing, but the ratings for the funeral of John Lewis, the ratings uh, for, for certain events involving Democrats or African-Americans, the Fox audience drops dramatically. Um, the Fox audience turns the channel uh, when events like that are, are happening, which I find to be just so depressing. 
And I, I should be clear, I guess, not, not every Fox viewer is turning away the channel. But the ratings fell by about half during the John Lewis funeral. And that just doesn't happen at other networks. Yeah, that's sort of wild. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you, too, is has, has Fox taken any responsibility for their role during the pandemic of sort of saying it wasn't real and then right. slowly seeming to turn and suggest that it is real? Not publicly, no. But, but there has been um, privately some soul-searching, some embarrassment, uh, some d- distraught individuals who talked to me about this on an individual level, but not collectively, not on a corporate level, no. That is so wild. It's like, I can't even believe they haven't been, I don't know, sued or something for the way they pandered at the beginning to to his ideas that it wasn't true. One group did sue in in Washington State. It didn't get a lot of attention because it was always a long shot case, long shot case. And sure enough, it did get thrown out of court. Um, You know, maybe that's going to discourage others from trying to sue. I I think here's here's what I would say, Dre. Obviously, there's a lot of blame to go around, a lot of responsibility to go around, uh, mayors and governors and other media outlets. But at the start of the pandemic, Fox had the biggest audience on cable, and President Trump had the biggest platform of anybody at all. So they have a lot of responsibility for that reason. And, yes, there's great journalists at Fox, and there were doctors on the air saying all the right things, but I think those voices were drowned out by the Sean Hannity's and drowned out by the Laura Ingrams, who were downplaying the pandemic. And you know how they were downplaying the pandemic? They were focusing on politics and not medicine. They were focusing on what's easy to cover, which is Trump versus the Democrats. So they were on there saying, you know, the Democrats are trying to hurt Trump with the pandemic. And this wasn't about politics. And, and that's ultimately why there was so much damage done in February and March. There was this obsession with politics over public health. And, and that is, I think, fundamentally what went wrong on Fox's airwaves. One of the last questions I want to ask you is, what does Fox look like post-Trump? <laughs> a lot of people there would like to know. Does Trump go, do you think Trump goes to work there? Yeah. Does he, does he become the head of Fox? Is it Trump TV? Like, why, <laughs> you know, what do they even do? Right. I don't see him uh, with a show on Fox, although anything's possible. I think it's more likely if he loses the election that he would go off and get a radio show or something like that. Or, of course, launch his own network. That's often been talked about, would he launch his own TV network. I'm skeptical. I think Fox is bigger than Trump, and Trump would have a very hard time launching his own network. But, you know, I've been wrong before. Um, What happens to Fox, you know, I don't know if you're going to like this answer, but I think Fox wins either way meaning Fox wins with Trump in office. They make lots of money and they you know, have lots of viewers. But Fox also wins with a Democrat in office. Uh, Fox, in some ways, is, is better. They, they know what to do and they know who they are more when there's a Democrat in office because they know what to focus on. It, it's easier, I suppose, to be against something than for something. Uh, and there's a lot of people at Fox who feel that, who feel that it's you know, better to have a Democrat in office because that's a better story for Fox to cover. But gosh, that's pretty cynical, isn't it? <laughs> that is definitely dark. Um, what advice do you have for people? These are two questions we ask everybody. What's a piece of advice you have for people who feel like they have protested, called, emailed, they've done all the things and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to? What do you say to those people? Well, I don't know what, what specific causes you know, you're referring to. Um, I'm trying to hesitate to keep my TV anchor hat on. But here's what I would say as a, as a, as a TV anchor. I think the country is changing in lots of ways. And I, I see a lot of progress being made. And what I mean by that is, well, let's just take Trump in for a minute. Most Americans see through the fog machine. Most Americans see through his lies. If you had asked me in January of 2017 when he was inaugurated what was going to happen and what, what the country's media would look like, and there were times I was really worried that there'd be journalists in jail. There were times I was worried that the president would use his power of the state 
to crack down on media companies in ways that would be really, really shocking and, de- and devastating. And, and what I mean by that is he uses awful words against the press, but it's mostly words, not actions. So I look at 2020 and I say most Americans see through it. Most Americans know that when he calls something fake news, <laughs> it's a signal that it's really actually very real. And uh, that, to me, is a sign of progress, um, that the news coverage uh, does make a difference, that it does not fall on deaf ears. So that's, that's the way I see it as a, as, a, as a journalist. And the last question, Brian, is um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? <laughs> I remember uh, my high school English teacher gave me a, a paperweight when I graduated, and it sits on my desk here. I'm, I'm still allowed into the office sometimes, uh, even during the pandemic, uh, so that I can anchor my show. And the, the paperweight says, the ultimate inspiration is the deadline. And then to me, that's, a, that's advice, and that's great advice. That <laughs> I've got to set myself a deadline. I've got to give myself a deadline. I've got to even have a fake deadline, because otherwise I will never get anything done. I'm, I'm the world's worst procrastinator. I missed so many deadlines for my book, um, but I need a deadline. And uh, so even if I have to fake it, that's what my uh, English teacher taught me, that the ultimate inspiration is the deadline. And, you know, as it so happens, sometimes blowing through deadlines and being a, a six months late on a book ends up being a good thing, uh, ends up uh, having, having the timing being right, um, because none of us could have seen this pandemic. But sadly, the pandemic is the best example of the twisted connection between Trump and Fox. Um, so I was able to, uh, to have to rewrite the book and, and tell the story of Trump using the word hoax, Hannity using the word hoax, um, in ways that were really damaging, unfortunately. And now here we are six months later, and most of us, uh, you know, are, are, uh, um, are not coming into the office and not, and not uh, able to have our normal lives. And I hope that responsibility wins the day and the responsible media coverage wins the day. Tell people where they can get the book, where the book is, so they can get it. Uh, very simply, buyhoax.com. Uh, check it out, uh, uh, ebook, audiobook, or print. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today, and I can't wait to have you back. And hopefully I will talk to you post-Trump, and we'll be like, whew, we survived, right? Or even in person after a pandemic. Right, Even right, better. Or that. <laughs> cool. Talk to you later. Thanks. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elzey. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. 
water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 